Beloved, we were very blessed by going back a few hundred years to the 1700s with that beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount. And we're going to go back another hundred years to the 1600s to be blessed yet again. I'm going to read a portion of the 1662 edition of the prayer book of the Anglican Church. The the words that I will read, especially depending on your age, might sound somewhat familiar. You may have heard many of them before. This is a section of the prayer book of the Anglican Church that is the introduction to the service of holy matrimony. And this is how it goes. It begins, Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocence, signifying unto us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee, and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites, like brute beasts that have no understanding, but rather reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, And in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication so that such persons as have not the gift of continency might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of the body of Christ. Thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort so that the one ought to have of the other both in prosperity and adversity. And the section finishes with these words, into which holy estate these two persons presence come now to be joined therefore if any man can show any just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together let him now speak or else forever hold his peace end quote beloved uh, i didn't I, i modernized a few of the words but i left some of them intact to just show the richness of these words that have stood the test of centuries of time and we understand that marriage has been under attack since the beginning. And we live in a time in particular when the Solomonization of marriage is passé and the trivialization of marriage is avant-garde. It's interesting as we think of this, that for me, this is a providential blessing of time because on this exact date, 34 years ago, On August 22nd, 1987, my beloved Margie and I exchanged vows of holy matrimony. This is my 35th wedding anniversary today. 
Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We are finishing, and this is where the providential blessing comes in. This is the fifth part of our treatment of verses 22 through 33 of God's charge to the Apostle Paul to wives and to husbands. Beloved, hear the word of God. I'm going to read just verses 31 through 33, which is the closing passage in our treatment of this epic, of this magnum opus of God's beautiful treatment and discourse on marriage. The word of God says, Ephesians 5 and verse 31, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. It's interesting, my beloved Margie, when I first started preaching when we were in Southern California, when I first started preaching, my beloved Margie gave me great words of wisdom that were, my, my helpmate gave me these great words of wisdom that really struck me and helped. I never forgot them, and they helped me in my preaching. Now, some of you may say, well, you didn't quite get the lesson. Feel free to come up afterwards if uh, you see some of the deficiencies still there. We are a work in process. But what my beloved said at the beginning when I first started preaching the word of God was, well, you put together these beads of, like, great truth, but then at the end, I'm not sure how they all go together what you need to do is you need to string those beads together push them together I never forgot that image of what she brought out and it's interesting beloved because that's precisely what the apostle Paul does here he has these beads of great truth and even in one sense all the way back from verse 22 forward we see that he goes back and forth between the relationship of the husband and the wife and the relationship of Christ and the church. And what the Apostle Paul does here in these closing three verses is he strings these beads together wonderfully. And one way in which we can know this, if you remember, in verses 22 through 24, back there we saw the very clear hierarchical role relationship between husband and wife with husband as head and wife being called to submit to her husband. But we did see in those four three verses that they have an ordered equality based on creation, based on virtue of their creation, verse 22, and the first half of verse 23. And then in the second half of verse 23 and 24, we see they had an ordered equality based on redemption, creation and redemption. And that is precisely how Paul wraps up these three verses here. The sermon outline we have this morning is two phrases. The first phrase is foundation at creation. The second phrase is revelation through redemption. Paul is stringing the beads together how he began with the words to the wives and how he finishes up here with the words to the husbands. And beloved, the intent for us is that the God who created the universe, God who made us in his own image, male and female in his own image, wants us to understand. And he explains clearly the meaning, the purpose, the goal of marriage. And by the way, as we go through this here this morning, we'll spend most of our time in that first phrase, which is in verse 31, the foundation at creation. Or expanded out, it is the foundation of marriage at creation creation when Paul 
directly quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's interesting, if we were to look at this magnificent, beautiful discourse from God through Paul to the Ephesian church and to you and I, this is kind of, in a sense, a magnum opus of God's word on marriage in Scripture with this beautiful artistry and language, the way the Holy Spirit superintends Paul to bring this. If we were to think of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 as the magnum opus on marriage, we could look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 as the Magna Carta of marriage, the beginning foundational document. Genesis 2, chapter, 24, chapter 2, verse 24, is the first and most profound and fundamental statement in the whole of Scripture by God concerning marriage. You could look at it in Genesis or just look at it right in verse 31 because it's almost an exact quote, only a couple minor differences in the way in which Paul quotes it. In Ephesians 5, 31, this is what you'll read. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Beloved, this is the foundation of marriage. This is the cornerstone of marriage. This comes on the heels. The original verse 24 in Genesis 2 comes right after the incredible poetic outburst from Adam when God formed Eve from the rib from Adam and brought Eve to the man. And you remember in verse 23, Adam had this eruption of poetry and excitement and joy at the sight of the woman. And what Adam said in poetic language in verse 23 of Genesis 2, he said, This one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. And what you have, even an outline of verses 23, 24, and 25 in Genesis 2, is verse 23 is the beautiful poetry of marriage. Verse 24, which is the one that Paul quotes here, in Ephesians 5 is the primacy of marriage or the priority of marriage. And then verse 25 back in Genesis 2 was the purity of marriage because the man and the woman were naked before the Lord and they were not ashamed. Now, the point here, though, is Paul quotes verse 24, the high priority and unrivaled place of the woman. And to be sure, the unrivaled place of the man to the woman, but the context that Paul uses here, and as it unfolded in God's created order, was the woman coming to the man. She is custom-made, tailor-made. She is exceedingly rare. And in the same way that Genesis 2, verse 24, is a perfectly fitting conclusion to Adam's outburst in verse 23, so also this foundational cornerstone truth that Paul quotes here is a perfectly fitting conclusion to the first two sermons we had on wives and this last third sermon we have on husbands, which is really just flowing from this beautiful text that God has before us. And right at the beginning, you'll see there, at the beginning of verse 31, Paul, quoting Moses, says, for this cause. Now, we can ask the question in the original context, what cause? What purpose? What was the goal of this foundation of marriage that comes afterwards? And we know from the background was it was to solve the aloneness problem. 
God had created the entire universe and everything was good. But there was one element of his creation that God said was not good, and that was that the man was alone. So it is to solve the aloneness problem. But as good students of the word, if we get real specific, we say, now wait a minute. Adam, that God created the woman. God fashioned the woman. God brought the woman to the man. The man named the woman. They're together at the end of verse 23. So isn't the problem of aloneness solved? And the answer is no, because they're not yet married. God does not lay down the foundation of marriage until verse 24, which is why he says for this cause. And the point here is taking this and applying this to our lives now. It is not merely about finding the right person. It is about finding the right person and putting that person in the right place is what God lays out for marriage. It's interesting when we think of how Paul quotes that verse here in Ephesians 5, we also know that Jesus in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, when he got questions from the Pharisees that were trying to trap him about marriage and about divorce, Jesus quoted also Genesis 2, 24 in his defense of marriage, in his answer to the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul was shepherding the immoral, immature church at Corinth, where they actually had Corinthian professing believers that were joining themselves together with prostitutes. When the Apostle Paul rebuked the wretched immorality of the Corinthian church, he again quoted this foundational cornerstone verse and truth of Genesis 2, verse 24. And that is because, beloved, Genesis 2, verse 24 is the ultimate fortress against promiscuity against polygamy, against perversion, against divorce. You see, if someone comes up and tells you, you young people, if someone tells you that they love you and then they want you to sin with them, that's not love, that's lust. That's not an expression of love, that's an expression of hate. Hatred of God and of his word and a love of self and hatred against you to seek you to violate your purity. You see, the agape love that God has commanded the husbands back in verse 25, again in verse 28, and we'll see again in verse 33, the agape love that all Christians are called towards, and especially husbands towards wives, the agape love doesn't pollute, the agape love purifies. We saw that even back in verse 25 and verse 26. And this means, using our modern vernacular, that one-night stands, moving in together, shacking up together, are not solutions to the aloneness problem. And beloved, it is because the goal of marriage, God's intent and goal for marriage, is not merely to not be alone. The goal of marriage before the Lord is oneness. And What we see when we look at what Paul writes, what he's quoting Moses after for this cause, we see three habitual actions, lifelong actions that characterize a marriage. In the original Hebrew grammar, the verbs indicated these are habitual things that husbands are to do and wives in turn do together, namely to leave, cleave, and unite. The first habitual action, beloved, we see in verse 31 is to leave. And the point here is to leave one house and to go to another. What 
Paul is talking about here when he quotes Moses is it's a transfer of the primary authority, responsibility, and loyalty from one, namely from mother and father to another, which as instructed the husband is to his wife, but also by extension of the wife to the husband. He says here in the text, a man shall leave his father and mother. It means that the man, and again, by extension, the woman, leave the closest social bond, which is parent-child, and go to an even closer one, to an even better one, which is husband and wife. This is the primacy of marriage. This is the priority of the marriage. It is the most sacred, most important human relationship. This brings out what we've seen throughout the verses before of the absolute exclusivity of one man and one woman together in holy matrimony for life until death do we part. Now, this command, this instruction, this characteristic to leave the mother and father doesn't mean that you shirk and stop and do away with filial responsibility, with family responsibility. The commandment, the fifth commandment to honor your mother and father is a standing command. But what it means is it puts the most intimate relationship and the highest loyalty now is no longer between parent and child, child and parent, but between husband and wife. You still honor your parents. That is, again, the standing duty. But in terms of provision, direction, and security, your marriage is a brand new beginning before the Lord. Beloved, marriage changes everything. We undergo a transition from one way of life to a way of life that is totally different. And it's exciting and is wonderful. And parents must understand this too. If parents, if Christian parents want their children to have good marriages, they won't interfere. And there's still a measure of obvious, I mean, again, the love just grows. The love doesn't diminish. There are even in sad situations because of sin, there can be situations where protection is needed and things of that nature. We certainly can't unravel all the different possibilities here. But for Christian parents, for their Christian children marrying in the Lord, you understand this dynamic. I understand this with my upcoming marriage and my beautiful beloved daughter coming up here in less than a month. But back on task here in this understanding of this habitual action to leave, one could ask the reasonable question, well, how far does one have to leave? I mentioned, I think, at the beginning, it's going from one house to another. In the context originally here, it was from one tent to another. So do you have to leave the tent? Can you be in another compartment of the tent? Do I have to leave the tent? Do I have to leave the compound? Do I have to go to another town? What is the answer to how far one has to go to leave? Well, I think the answer is this. As far as is necessary to effectively cleave and unite to go to the next one. It's not about a geographic separation. It's about a mental understanding of this new dimension. So the first Habitual action, beloved, under the umbrella of this foundational stone of marriage is to leave. The second is to cleave. Again, you leave one house, one tent, one home to go to another. The text continues, and shall cleave to his wife. It's a brand new, unique way. Now, how many of you used the word cleave this last week? 
I don't normally ask for hands. I thought I was safe here because I don't think any hands would go up. I, I, obviously, outside of this, I didn't use it myself. The word cleave means to glue together, to cement, to cling to, stick to, join to. It means to grab hold of and not let go. In the English Standard Version of Mark chapter 10, verse 7, it's translated the same word is translated as hold fast to. Now, you can think of it this way, and this actually comes from even the root meaning of the word. If you have two pieces of metal, maybe they're different kinds of metal, and if you meld them together, when you, or weld them together, when you weld them together, they retain their original properties, but they are forever joined together as now one piece. That's a great picture to understand what God is talking about here. It wouldn't be like forming an alloy. If you melt two different pieces of metal down where they blend together and form an alloy, the alloy loses some of the original properties that it had before. That's not the case in marriage. You are joined together, cleaved together into one flesh, the text will say here in a bit. But you are still unique, wonderfully different as man and woman in the Lord. Now, we could say it this way, that in some ways you're still two, And in a beautiful, mysterious, wonderful way, ordained by God from the beginning, you are one. One plus one equals one. And the latter one is greater than the sum of the former ones. Now, when we think and want to unpack a little bit more about this cleaving, it has different elements There's a physical cleaving. There is a relational cleaving. There's an emotional cleaving. There is a spiritual cleaving. The first cleaving that Moses intended to understand from the beginning, and all the commentators, even on Ephesians, are in agreement on this, is the physical cleaving. And I love James Boyce. It was actually, I I was uh, listening to him some months ago. It wasn't on this passage here. But James Boyce brought out a great uh, portion from a book that he had read that brings out the positive celebration of God's good gift of sexual intimacy in a marriage between husband and wife. It was from a book entitled The Mystery of Marriage by a gentleman named Mike Mason, and this is what Mr. Mason wrote. He said this, quote, what can equal the surprise of finding out the one thing above all others which mankind has been most enterprising and proficient in dragging through the mud turns out in fact to be the most innocent thing in the world is there any other activity at all which an adult man and woman may engage in together as husband and wife that is actually more childlike more clean and pure more natural and wholesome and unequivocally right than is the act of making love For if worship is the deepest available form of communion with God, then surely sexual intimacy between husband and wife is the deepest communion possible between human beings. And as such, is something absolutely essential, and I love what he adds, in more than a biological way to our survival. End quote. Beloved, it is a beautiful gift from the Lord to you as husband and his wife. Now, of course, we understand the public promise must precede the private pleasure. And that's even given in the order of leave, cleave, and unite. It also brings out clearly one man and one woman, one male and one female. So-called 
same-sex marriage is biblically, logically, and anatomically utterly ludicrous. John Stott, the pastor, and the commentator said that the physical complementarity of man and woman is a symbol of a much deeper spiritual complementarity. So, beloved, when we think of this act of cleaving, it's not just the expression of intimacy, but the heart of intimacy. So it begins with a physical cleaving, and it encompasses the emotional ongoing cleaving, the ongoing relational cleaving, and all of which, the physical, emotional, and relational, are all predicated for a child of God upon the spiritual cleaving. That's the absolute essential nature. Turn with me, if you would, back to Joshua chapter 23 to bring out the importance and the weight of the spiritual cleaving. We'll see actually a usage of the same Hebrew verb, which is translated as cleave in Genesis 2, verse 24. In Joshua 23, verses 6 through 8, God is instructing the nation of Israel to remain pure and to remain devoted exclusively to Yahweh, to God, and to not be polluted and not to adulterate themselves spiritually by following after other gods, namely the gods of the nations. And what he writes And records through Joshua 23, verse 6, God says to the nation, Be very firm, then, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, in order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, But you are to, watch this, you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. And you probably rightly surmise that cling to the Lord your God is the same word when he talks about the man cleaving to the woman. This is the spiritual fidelity that God calls the nation of Israel to. It's stated positively there in verse 8, but verse 7 is the great contrast. Don't even say their name. God says to the nation, I want you to stay as far away as possible from anyone that would compete with me, anything that would compete with me, anyone that would propel you towards a lack of fidelity towards me. What it means for you men, men and women, but right now the charge is to the men. It means you are saying to your wife at the altar and you say to her every day of your life, I'm going to establish an unrivaled, unique relationship with you. You will have no competition as the one woman, as the apple of my eye. I won't go places where your unique status is threatened. I won't follow after people or be with people that would seek to threaten your unique status as the apple and as the joy of my eye. So you are to leave, you are to cleave. The third habitual action that we see here from Moses and from Paul is you are to unite. You are to unite. What he's talking about here, beloved, is the union of two lives fused into one, an unbroken lifelong joining together. And the words he uses, again quoting Moses, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, When Christ responded to the Pharisees in, as I mentioned before, in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, 
he says, what therefore God has joined together. Now that's a different word translated as joined together in those two passages. But that is a beautiful word that also pictures together this cleaving and this even union together. The word translated as joined together that Christ used basically evokes the image of oxen, of two oxen with one yoke. They're still two different oxen, but they're pulling together and they are yoked together so they are one entity. They are united. And that's at a physical level, but there is a mystical union here. You shall become one flesh. Look back for a moment to chapter 2, verse 15. We've already seen in Ephesians a similar treatment. When Paul was writing to the Ephesian church and talking about the beauty of Jew and Gentile together in one body, of the situation where there was this enmity and even coming from a differentiation that God himself had put in place between Jew and Gentile that in Christ there is one new man and in chapter 2 verse 15 the apostle Paul writes by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace That's a mystical union of Jew and Gentile together in the church. And what Paul is now bringing out is expanding on what God had given Moses all the way back in Genesis is the mystical union of the husband and wife together. The two become one flesh. It means her strengths become your strengths and his strengths become your strengths. It means... This is an indissoluble unification. There are no other options. There are no escape hatches. This includes the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual in difficulties and in trials. Now, this uniting, there is an already and a not yet portion of it. Uh, When I was in Southern California, the kind of reigning outline that kind of permeated through the premarital counseling, and it rhymes well, was you leave, you cleave, and you weave. Leaving, uh, cleaving, and weaving. And that's kind of nice, but I like uniting and unite better because, understand this, there is an already aspect of your union. Men and women, husband and wife, when you said, I do, at the altar, and the pastor pronounced you husband and wife, you were united as one flesh before the Lord. That's the already portion of it. And there's a not yet lifelong dimension of continuing to unite together. That's the weaving. That's why I shifted gears from saying leave, cleave, and weave to leave, cleave, and unite because unite captures both. Weaving captures the second component, the not yet portion. Well, it is a lifelong pursuit, a continual uniting, a continual weaving. Now, having said that, the world says, yeah, leave, cleave, and unite as long as the good times roll, as long as you feel like it, as long as you are still in love. I mean, you fell in love as long as you don't fall out of love, as long as you want to stay married. God, however, says marriage is for life. And beloved, friend, there is no corruption more vile or more dangerous than the corruption of the marriage. The disintegration of a nation is accomplished historically 
and we see it unfolding even in our time by the disintegration of the family. John Calvin said, the husband who separates from his wife bursts the chain of which God was the author. And by the way, the rest of Christ's words in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, when he quoted Genesis 2, was, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What Christ is saying, what God is saying is, I make marriages, and you better not rip them apart. Jesus continued, he basically told the Pharisees, what happens is if you rip apart one flesh, you create four adulterers. And we know even from the Old Testament, from Malachi, I was blessed to preach Malachi at my beloved church, Santan Bible Church, four years ago. Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. The long verse begins, I hate divorce. Uh, Man creates no-fault divorce laws, I think, in the United States That was back in the 60s. God, however, says divorce is a treacherous, violent act. Uh, At the end of Malachi 2.16, he says the husband who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. When I did preach to Malachi four years ago, I read a letter that was written by a 20-year-old woman. The title of the letter was Divorce from a Child's Point of View. What had happened was this 20-year-old or 20-ish-year-old woman had heard a Christian radio announcer speak about divorce and God's viewpoint of it. And apparently he received some complaining letters, so he kind of apologized for being too harsh. And this is what this woman said from the perspective of a child that had suffered the ravaging effects of divorce. She said this, quote, I just listened to your broadcast, and I felt compelled to write. You mentioned you received a letter from someone concerned that you are too hard on divorce, and my heart broke. I'm a 28-year-old single professional woman. I grew up in an unstable, non-Christian home. I've had five parents and three sets of siblings. My mother told me just this last Sunday, and she informed me that she is about to bestow upon me a sixth parent and a fourth set of siblings. I understand in the very depths of my being why my God hates divorce and why we should too. No good thing comes from it, ever. Divorce has not only stolen from me a family, but also a trust that marriage is a good and desirable thing. The grapes my parents ate with relish have set my teeth on edge. Divorce answers no question, solves no problem, resolves no conflict, gives no respite, restores no dignity, and grants no peace. She finishes with these words. Divorce cannot be dealt with too harshly, especially in the church of Jesus Christ. And then I love this sentence because it flows directly from the truth of what we're studying here in Ephesians 5. She wrote, I bless God he knows no divorce in the marriage covenant he has established between himself and his bride. We must teach husbands and wives to honor the covenant they made before God, if for no other reason than the sake of the next generation, end quote. Now, the temptation, you might hear this from someone. There might even be a temptation because marriages can be difficult to have the thinking, but I have a right to be happy. And if if someone professes to be a Christian, you can ask the question, where do you get that? There is no, you don't have, we don't have a right to be happy granted anywhere in Scripture on this side of eternity. Rather, we have a command to be holy. And 
Beloved, divorce because of marital problems is like having a splinter in the leg and going to the doctor and asking him to amputate it. Or it's like you're on the 10th floor of a building on fire with no safe exit. The only option you have is put the fire out. Now, to be sure, even in Christ's teaching and even in 1 Corinthians 7, there is a divorce that is allowed. And this is where the hope of God comes in. I mean, you may have a husband that, or even an ex-husband that was an unrepentant serial adulterer. Maybe you had an unbelieving wife who deserted you and you are now divorced as a result. You are clean before the Lord. You are free to remarry before the Lord according to the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 7. And please don't let the shadow of these strong words of condemnation of divorce fall upon you. Maybe you were divorced in the past before you were saved. Now you are saved and you have truly repented in your heart. And godly sorrow produces repentance, what? Without regret. Beloved, God's strong words of condemnation are not intended for you. There may still be lifelong consequences for past sin, but you are clean before the Lord. And the God who hates divorce is the same God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And beloved, dear friend, the gospel is the answer to every marital problem. And as many people there are, as many marriages there are, there are a thousand times more marriage problems. And the answer to every one of them, the resolution, the solution, is found only at the cross. And for the son of God, for the daughter of God, it is never the case that a better relationship is ultimately hopeless. There is no damage beyond repair. Now, humanly speaking, it may be the case there is no hope. It may be damaged beyond repair from a human perspective. But with God, all things are possible. And beloved, the blood shed at the cross cleanses, forgives, and rebuilds. And beloved, being holy in a difficult situation will always bring far greater contentment, joy, and satisfaction than being, quote, happy in a sinful situation. That is the foundation of marriage at Creation. The second phrase is revelation through redemption, namely the revelation of the mystery of marriage through redemption. We see this in verse 32. We understand that human illustration helps us understand divine truths. It's part of preaching. Christ used that in his teaching. But in the final analysis, we understand that it's divine truth, understanding divine truth, that enables us to understand everything else. And that's why the Apostle Paul goes back and forth between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. And he says in verse 32, this mystery is great. It's like you walk into a cave, and you walk into the cave, and you get into the chamber, and you see there's an opening to another chamber. So then you go to the other chamber and then you go and you see another and you keep going going till finally you get to the final chamber and it's there that you find the final treasure and that is precisely what we see here that is as wonderful and as amazing and as joyous and as satisfying and as enriching is a godly marriage relationship between a man of God and a woman of God marriage is much bigger than merely husband and wife 
he says this mystery is great, musterion. The New Testament mystery, musterion, is not something that's spooky or eerie. It's not some secret that's inexplicable or incomprehensible. We've seen this before even earlier in Ephesians. A New Testament mystery is a truth ordained by God in eternity past, previously kept concealed, but now revealed by God at the appropriate time, even as Paul writes this here. We, in Christ, with the teaching ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we don't understand it perfectly or necessarily entirely, but we are elevated and lifted on the winds of this rich doctrine to rarefied heights of the beautiful truth that God lays out. And what Paul is saying here, beloved, is that the essential characteristic of marriage is not simply that two people live together, not even in holy matrimony. That, that, that's only the beginning. There's something much beyond, something much deeper, something much more wonderful. That's why in the rest of 32 he says, but I am speaking with reverence to Christ and the church. In 2 Peter 1, verse 4, Peter the Apostle writes something that follows in this footstep. He says of God that God has granted to us, 2 Peter 1, 4, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Beloved, the point is, even as we see Paul going back and forth between the husband, wife, and Christ in the church, as the woman was taken out of Adam from his side, so the church is taken out of Christ. Eve was taken out of the side of Adam, and it is from the Lord's bleeding, wounded side the church comes. The Lord Jesus left the courts of glory and came into this world for his bride. One humanity, the old humanity, even going back to Ephesians 2, started in Adam. There's a new humanity that is started in the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul described Christ as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, and the second man in verse 47. And even when Paul, in verse 30, wrote, because we are members of his body, there's an element where Paul says we are taking on his flesh and his bones. And this mystery is revealed more fully, but it's not brand new. The most ancient book in the Bible is Job. And in Job 19, verses 25 through 26, Job let out in the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his poverty, in the midst of his grief, hope towards the future, and I actually preached on this, I believe, on Easter in uh, 2020. And what Job said while he was sitting on the ash, on the ash heap, in Job 19, 25, and 26, he said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Or Think of what, when Jesus appeared to Saul, Saul who had become Paul, Saul who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and as to the law, zealous, when Saul was breathing, breathing out murderous threats against the Christian in Acts chapter 9, Jesus appeared before Saul, and do you remember what he said? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? That's not what he said. 
Did, did he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my children? No, he didn't say that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because what he's saying is, when you touch them, you touch me. That is the union, beloved. So the marriage of man and wife, as beautiful as it is, is far more significant than merely two people who decided to walk through life together. Well, in brief, in verse 32, Paul goes from the deep, rich, intense theology, and he goes to the practical. And for Paul, the practical is never divorced from the theological. And what he says in verse 33, he's recapitulating, restating what he's already said before, is wives submit and husbands love in the light of the staggering mystery and privilege of your union with Christ. To the husbands, he says, verse 33, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. Again, exclusive and particular. There's no room for exceptions. And man, if you're here, husband, if you're here, if you're not in Christ, you aren't able to do this. You can, under God's common mercy, love your wife, but it is impossible for a man to love his wife wife with the love of Christ if he himself doesn't know the love of Christ. There is always an open invitation from Christ. Christ said if anyone comes to him and asks for forgiveness, that he will receive you to himself, forgive you your sin, and make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And it's at that point when you begin experiencing the love of Christ that you could love your wife with this kind of love. And then lastly, he finishes with words to the wife. He says, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Um, I won't get into the details here, but there is kind of a, an imperatible command thrust to what he talks to the husbands and to the wives here. And it, there's a softer tone to the wives. I will say I see Raymond sitting out there. So it's a heat of purpose statement with the indicative to the husband and a heat of purpose statement with the subjunctive to the wife. But Anyway, but, but I just love the perspective here because the pastoral heart of Paul, which especially when he's writing scripture, reflects the pastoral heart of the great shepherd. There's a softer tone to the women. Having said this, there is, in the same way as we saw before, in the kind of agape love that all Christians are called towards, especially husbands to their wives, we understand it's a choice, it's a decision, it's a matter of the will, it's a matter of obedience to God's command. So also there's that same dimension in that wives you are to respect your husband even when they're not respectable. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of obedience to the Lord. And beloved, I'll finish with reading a letter. It's a letter from a man describing his beautiful wife who will be the mother of his unborn child. It was written by a man named David Ireland. And as he wrote he was suffering a crippling fatal neurological disease and he didn't think he would ever even be able to meet the unborn child certainly not at the point where the child would be old enough to know him and so this is what David Ireland wrote to his unborn child about his wife he said this quote and by the way this reflects biblical submission this reflects biblical respect verse 33 this respects or excuse me, this represents agape love. Quote, your mother is very special. 
Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. For your mother to take me out to dinner, it means she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps. She has to open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the wheelchair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedal off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. And then when it's over, finished, when we're home with real warmth, she'll say, honey, Thank you for taking me out to dinner. He finishes by saying, I never really know what to say in response. Beloved, that is agape love. That is biblical submission. That is biblical respect. That is biblical honoring of his wife the best way he can. Beloved, that is a great wrap-up of our look at what a spirit filled marriage looks like as we've been blessed to go through this magnum opus of the word of God on marriage. Please join me as we go to the Lord <clears throat> in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, God, our Father, for your eternal plan of redemption. We praise you and thank you, God, even in eternity past, when you had perfect communion, perfect solitude, perfect satisfaction within the triune Godhead that you decided to speak the universe into existence. We praise you and thank you for the beauty and wonder of your creation. And we praise you and thank you for the pinnacle, the apex, the zenith, the most beautiful dimension of your creation, which is, of course, man made in your own image, male and female, and of the beautiful union of a man and a woman, of a husband and wife, and the beauty and the wonder and the joy that that represents in Christ and what that pictures of the eternal union between you, our Lord and Savior, and us, your bride, your children. It is for your glory and for your honor and with these deep truths ringing in our hearts, Lord, that we pray and that we sing and that we are blessed to hear the testimonies at baptism that are forthcoming after the service. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.